Hello, friends and listeners, and welcome to the Bag of Bones podcast, first anniversary. This episode is going to be a bit different. On September 24, 2020, I made good use of the pandemic, and thanks to the help and encouragement of the folks at Ragtag Network, the Bag of Bones podcast was released. Our first episode, The Limp Mansion. And since that first week, we have made it to our 52nd episode, with a whole lot of frights, freaks, and disturbing history in between. As suggested by listener at Robert Taylor 18 our anniversary is going to highlight some of the top Bag of Bones-ish stories from our American History Archives to present to you in a lightning round over two episodes. 24 days, 24 shorts. We have a lot to cover, so... Without further ado, we begin with September 1st, 1676. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. In this corner we have Governor William Berkeley, the honorable English scholar, former Indian fighter, and playwright. In his 70 years, he has earned respect as a leader and a negotiator. In this corner, we have Nathaniel Bacon, a young, rowdy upstart who was sent to the new colonies, given rank and a land grant to hopefully help him mature. The issue? The Indians. Nathaniel Bacon wanted to immediately remove all the Indian tribes so the planters, like himself, could expand. Governor William Berkeley was afraid of the massive number of Indians surrounding the area would come together and annihilate the fort. Plus, many believed that trading with the Indians was a good thing. Ready? Here's the short version. Side note. Yes, I know, several more things went into building this historical event, but if there is one word to describe this episode and the next, it is oversimplifying. And believe me, it hurts me more than it hurts you, so bear with me. In a private matter, one farmer had a disagreement with the Doeg Indian tribe. The Doegs took revenge. A militia attempted to counter-revenge, but killed a number of the wrong tribe. When Governor Berkeley tried to remain calm and defuse the situation by holding meetings with the disgruntled parties, Tempers flared and many of the tribal chiefs lost their lives. Lines were being drawn. Kill the Indians or move them from their land, or try to mend relationships in order to continue peaceful trading. Bacon escalated matters by accusing a third Indian tribe of stealing corn. Berkeley stepped in and laid down a harsh ruling about the future trades with Indians. They were going to have to be micromanaged until things quieted down. All weapons were taken away from the Indian tribes, and each transaction had to be supervised. Plus, a militia was created to deal with the quote-unquote bad Indians. Not that they could tell one tribe from another, obviously. 
So Bacon was not happy with this arrangement because he didn't receive a commission to lead the militia. So he took his ball and went home, pouting. Along the way, he created his own band of Indian fighters. This band was made up of black and white indentured servants and slaves, which Bacon offered freedom for their support. Not cool, Bacon. Not cool. Governor Berkeley was forced to declare Bacon a rebel and removed him from his seat in the council. The pronouncement also offered Bacon's followers a pardon if they turned themselves in, promising that Nathaniel Bacon would receive a fair trial. Things got extra crazy when Bacon and his band of over 200 followers surrounded an assembly in June. He threatened to start shooting people if Berkeley did not give him his commission back. No, wait. He wanted now to be general of all forces against the Indians. Berkeley denied his request and even offered his own body to be shot first. Bacon did not shoot him, and Berkeley eventually gave in to his demands. Berkeley was escorted from Jamestown, and Bacon dominated the village. He then created the Declaration of the People on July 30th and forced his people to swear an oath to it. It basically read that Berkeley was corrupt and played favorites and that the people be loyal to Bacon no matter what, by any means necessary. But while Berkeley may have been out of sight, he was definitely not settling into his retirement. Here we are in September and the winds are about to change. Berkeley was able to overtake Jamestown and Bacon lost his mind. He tried to lead his men on several sieges and even kidnapped the wives of some of the major players to buy himself some time, but finally, on September 19, 1676, he burned Jamestown to the ground. By October 26th, Bacon was dead. He died of bloody flux, which is a form of dysentery, and lousy disease, which is when the person is so infected with vermin that it creates tumorous skin lesions and can also attack the brain. It is believed that his body was burned because it was never found. Berkeley did regain control of Jamestown and hanged all of the leaders of the rebellion. Berkeley returned to England where he died in July of 1677. Jamestown was rebuilt, but the colonial capital was later moved to Williamsburg, Virginia in 1699. On August 31st, the railroad tracks leading from Macon, Georgia to Atlanta were seized by Union troops at Jonesboro. With his supply lines completely severed, General John B. Hood feared the Union soldiers would acquire the munitions and other supplies, so he ordered his men to destroy their supply depots and set fire to over 81 full train cars as they marched away from the area, abandoning it on September 1st. On September 2, 1864, the mayor of Atlanta, James Calhoun, met with Major General Henry W. Slocum and surrendered the city, asking for, quote, protection of non-combatants and private property, end quote. General William T. Sherman sent a telegram on the next day to Washington, quote, Atlanta is ours and fairly won, end quote. President Abraham Lincoln was re-elected by a wide margin over George B. McClellan, and America lost one of its highest-ranking Union officers, Major James B. McPherson. By 1880, 
Atlanta had recovered from the South's retreat and attempt to prevent its capture by setting it ablaze and was built back up to one of the largest cities in the United States. The Battle of Yorktown had finally completed the American Revolutionary War when, on the morning of October 17th, a British-adorned drummer boy followed by an officer waving a white handkerchief. All fights ceased. General Lord Charles Cornwallis surrendered. The American Continental Congress appointed John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and John Jay to negotiate the peace treaty. Benjamin Franklin, who was in France for the entirety of the American Revolutionary War, played an integral part of the French's participation, and he would also lay the groundwork for peace negotiations to begin in Paris between America and Britain. Both sides were ready to put the disputes behind them, but Britain did not want to recognize the United States as an independent nation. It took until September 3, 1783, a full two years after surrender for the United States of America to be recognized as the new and independent nation by signing the Treaty of Paris. The treaty covered all the details such as fishing rights, exploration rights, debts, treatment of citizens, and, of course, boundaries. As part of the new boundaries, the U.S. now claimed the land that we know of as Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Wisconsin, and a good chunk of Minnesota. Spoiler alert, we claim the rest of the statehood by May of 1858. Following the signing of the treaty, which was also signed by France, Spain, and the Netherlands, didn't keep the peace for long as both the American side and the British side continued to do things against the signed treaty, almost resulting in another war. Luckily, John Jay returned to Europe in 1795 to attempt to keep the peace and a new agreement was signed known as Jay's Treaty. September 4th, 1886 He was the last Native American leader to formally surrender to the United States military, spending the next 20 years of his life as a prisoner of war. Born in 1829, the Apache warrior we know as Geronimo was born in Arizona. His people would recall that in his youth he was reserved and carefree. When he was 17, he married and his family grew with the birth of his three children. They were his world. In 1858, his family was slaughtered by Mexican soldiers. He would write in his memoirs, quote, I found that my aged mother, my young wife, and my three small children were among the slain. There were no lights in camp, so without being noticed, I silently turned away and stood by the river. How long I stood there, I do not know. But when I saw the warriors arranging for a council, I took my place. I vowed vengeance on the Mexican troopers who had wronged me. End quote. Geronimo went on to become a leader of the Apache warriors on a tireless fight to protect his people from white settlers on Apache land and became the epitome of the, quote, symbol of the untamed freedom of the American West, end quote. He got his revenge and his moniker of Geronimo. He did not know how to fire a weapon, so the Apache warrior would run at his opponent in a zigzag fashion until he was close enough to stab them with his knife. 
It's believed that those who witnessed his fierce revenge would run away yelling for protection of St. Jerome, but it came out sounding like Geronimo. By the 1870s, the Apache Nation was forced to live on a reservation in Arizona called the San Carlos Reservation, but the Native Americans called it Hell's Forty Acres, as it was arid and dry with no trees or water source. Geronimo rebelled. He attempted to take some of his people to another reservation where it was cleaner and had water, but was arrested. He escaped along with his warriors, and an all-out 5,000-soldier manhunt chased the legend across the Rockies and the Sierra Madre Mountains. When they could run no more, Geronimo offered to turn himself in for the release of his people and if his 17 men would be allowed to stay together. After his trial, Geronimo was put to work on the South Pacific Railroad doing heavy labor as a prisoner of war, which was in direct conflict with the agreement he made with the United States in his terms of surrender. The rest of his days comprised of hard labor and shameless exploitation. He would receive national attention by his involuntary attendance at the St. Louis World's Fair and as a guest at Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West Show. He would also serve as a scout for the U.S. Army and march in the 1905 inaugural parade for President Theodore Roosevelt. He knew that his days were numbered and requested of the Great White Father, who was President Roosevelt, if he and his people could be returned to the Southwest so that he may die in his homeland. Roosevelt told the warrior that he, quote, had a bad heart. You killed many of my people. You burned villages. You were not good Indians, end quote. Nonetheless, Geronimo dedicated his autobiography to the president in hopes that he would read it and come to understand the Native American perspective and why he fought so hard. One final request to have his family around as he transitioned, but for some reason his final wishes were sent by snail mail instead of telegram. Geronimo died of pneumonia on February 17, 1909, alone. He was 79 years old. Hey everyone, I'm Katie Bougeret-Caldwell, creator of the Ragtag Network. The Ragtag Network is home to an eclectic assortment of podcast content such as Save Me an Isle Seed, Bag of Bones, Total Tomfoolery, and more. To find out more about us and the content we produce, check us out at www.ragtagnetwork.com. We look forward to your visit. On display at the Gerald R. Ford Museum in Grand Rapids, Michigan, is an M1911 pistol that was used in the assassination attempt of the president on this day, September 5, 1975. Even though most of the Manson family has been behind bars for the Sharon Tate murders, there was one still keeping Charles Manson's gospel alive. Lynette Fromm, better known as Squeaky, was living in California and assumed a leadership role of those that remained free that were loyal to Manson. However, Lynette Fromm was on a personal mission to save the mighty redwood forests from smog. After hearing about President Ford's decision of altering the 1963 and 1970s Clean Air Act, she felt that the tallest trees in America were no longer safe, and she believed that it would require taking down the leader of the free world to get the necessary attention for her cause. On the day of her plan, 
she already knew that President Ford was staying at the Senator Hotel and would need to make his way to the state capitol. She dressed in red, quote, for the animal and earth colors, and positioned herself at Capitol Park. At 10.02, Ford left his hotel and crossed L Street, also known as the Lincoln Highway, and began shaking hands with those who had gathered there. Here's where we slow down time and do the whole slow motion thing. President Ford remembers looking up and seeing a woman dressed in red standing away from the crowd, but at the moment thought nothing more of it. The president was surrounded by people on either side as he inched his way across the park, and he remembers seeing, quote, I saw a hand come through the crowd in the first row, and that was the first active gesture that I saw, but in the hand there was a gun, end quote. The 26-year-old raised the pistol up shoulder high, which was about the level of Ford's waist, and fired the gun. Several people surrounding the lady in red heard the empty metal chamber before the screaming began. Fromm was unable to get off a second shot as she was forced to the ground and the gun removed from her hand by Secret Service agent Larry Buendorf. The magazine was full of ammunition, but there was no bullet in the chamber. President Ford was half-drug, half-walked to Capitol Building, and went through his meeting without even mentioning barely escaping with his life. In November of 1975, Fromm would be convicted of attempted murder of a president and sentenced to life. On September 22nd of the same year, another assassination attempt would be directed at President Ford for reasons other than the Redwoods. President Ford died of natural causes completing his presidential term unscathed in December 2006. Lynette Fromm was released from her life sentence in August of 2009. September 6, 1943 Passengers waiting for their train in Philadelphia tried to remain patient, waiting for the news of the delay. Finally, workers brought out a huge sign and placed it below the terminal time schedule. It read, Due to the obstruction at Frankfurt Junction, all trains to and from Philadelphia subject to two-hour delay. This affects all trains east, west, and south. Well, that was the understatement of the year. As those at the Pennsylvania station in New York waited for their loved ones to arrive or wait for their turn to board, Hundreds of workers were just down the track cleaning up the remains, both human and mechanical, of the Pennsylvania Railroad's Congregational Limited. Quote, I never heard such crying and screaming before. Norman Ebinger, an air raid warden, would tell a local newspaper reporter. He'd go on to say, quote, We heard the crash and rushed up with our first aid equipment. There were at least 50 people strewn all over the tracks. The panic was terrible. The screams of the injured and dying cut right through me. End quote. The Congressional Limited traveled between Washington, D.C. and New York City. It happened to be Labor Day weekend in 1943, and the Pennsylvania Railroad added extra cars to accommodate the high demand. It seemed to be rolling along fine at its usual speed of 80 miles per hour as it passed through the North Philadelphia station, slowing down, as per usual, and then sped back up as it pulled back out. The difference this time is that as it passed through, some workers noticed flames coming from what was called a journal box, 
which is the structure that holds the axle bearings and oil-soaked cotton packing to help reduce friction. They tried to call ahead to the next station, which was Frankfurt Junction, to warn them, but the train had beat them to it. Before they realized what was happening, car number seven's axle snapped, launching it straight up. When it reared back, it hit a signal gantry, which is those poles you see along the sides of the track with a perpendicular arm, and it literally peeled back the metal roof all the way down to the window line. Car number eight followed suit and vaulted straight up and bent twice in the middle. The next six cars jumped the track and landed in a haunting display of twisted metal, but then the last two cars were left undamaged. Seventy-nine were dead, scattered about the tracks and trapped inside the cars. It took a full twenty-four hours to disassemble the train cars to rescue the 117 injured. Just down the way from the city school bus depot on the corner of Louisiana and Preston Streets in Houston, Texas, stood a three-story building. The first floor housed a variety of businesses, but the second floor was used as economy accommodations offering 87 beds, and the third floor was more of an open space where 50 cots could be rented out for half the price of a bed if need be. This was the Gulf Hotel. In 1943, patrons could rent a room, which was loosely translated into a row of beds partitioned by a thin wall of wood, and with a door. On September 7th of 1943, the register listed 133 names all staying on the second and third floors. Most of their clientele was usually drunk, elderly, or transient workers coming into town looking for wartime work. Just past midnight on this particular evening, the front desk manager was called up to the second floor to put out smoldering ashes on a mattress, probably started by someone dropping a cigarette. The mattress was patted down, and he threw some mop water on it, believing that they had things under control. He removed the mattress and tucked it into a hall closet. Moments later, the mattress ignited into flames and devoured the old wood in its path. It spread quickly up and out. The residents panicked and scattered in many directions. Even though there were two exits, one an interior staircase and the other an exterior fire escape, the stairwells backed up with people trying to get out as the flames drew closer. Police Captain C.A. Martindale told reporters of a man attempting to escape down the outside stairs with his clothing completely in flames. He jumped from the fire escape to the ground and just kept running. Others weren't so lucky. Three men jumped to their death from their hotel windows. Fifteen others died at the local hospitals, and 38 bodies were discovered in the building once the blaze was under control. Donations poured into the Red Cross from the people of Houston to make sure the men who died were given a proper burial. A mass funeral was held for the victims who were unable to be identified. A parking lot for the Houston City Ballet is now where the brick building once stood. September 8th. Lost on the Lady Elgin. Sleeping to wake no more. Numbered with those 300 who failed to reach the shore. 
This is a song that was written to remember the tragedy that took the lives of over 300 on this day in 1860. On the dark choppy waters of Lake Michigan, a passenger side-wheel steamboat left Chicago just before midnight. The Lady Elgin, as she was called, carried almost 400 passengers who were returning from their Labor Day outings. Around 2.30 in the morning, the crew spotted a lumber schooner named Augusta that was pointed right for them, but it was too late to do anything. The waves were roiling and the storm clouds covered any light the moon might have offered, and by the time the Augusta bounced off the large steamboat, it had sailed off toward Chicago with little or no damage. The Lady Elgin, however, was taking in water through a huge hole in its side. It all happened so fast that only three lifeboats were able to be used. The waves tossed the small boats as the passengers attempted to hold on for dear life in the darkness. Only two boats reached the shore with a total of 18 passengers. The steamboat went under in less than an hour. Passengers clung to floating scraps of the wreckage hoping to survive the storm and make it to shore. In total, only 98 were saved. Edward Spencer, a student of the Garrett Biblical Institute, saw that the victims were having trouble getting past the breakers without being sucked under or struck by thrashing floating debris. He tied a rope around his waist, securing the other end on shore, and repeatedly rushed into the angry waters again and again, grabbing survivors and pulling them to shore. He was able to save 17 people. One of the saddest stories was that of Captain Jack Wilson. He was seen on his ship directing his crewmen while holding a baby in his arms. One of his crew, Michael Smith, recalls, quote, He ran back to the cabin to arouse the sleepers and get them on deck. Many stateroom doors were fastened, and he broke them in with an axe, exhorting the sleepers, many of who had been drinking a good deal, to rouse and save themselves, end quote. When he had done all he could, he found a large piece of deck to cling to. Side note, no, I don't know what happened to the baby. I promise you, I tried to find out. So, he is floating around with about 16 others struggling to stay afloat, and the shore is in sight. They waved to those who were waiting to help them on the sandy bank. They were so close to being able to reach one of the moorings when a huge set of waves pummeled the small makeshift raft sending the last of the survivors to their watery grave. The following days, relatives and friends of the missing passengers walked along the shores, waiting, searching. The Tribune reported, quote, They spent the middle of the day waiting for the waves to give up their dead, searching with anxious eyes every inch of the beach and every breaker that rolled in. They were a sad sight, end quote. Side note. That young Biblical Institute student, Edward Spence, that saved those 17, he had passed away in 1917, and his brother, also now a reverend, created a pamphlet in his brother's honor that reads in part, quote, I have a brother in heaven who, for the rescue of lost sinners, gave his life, and sends each of us as his representative with the lifeline to save a world. Quote, we may not be able to go down into the flood, we may not be trained or fitted to work in a foreign land or in the billows of a great city of our own country, but may we not all at least hold the line for some brave swimmer and cheer him in his struggle with the waves. End quote. 
Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! It's considered the worst and bloodiest prison riot in history, and it happened on September 9th, 1971, at the Maximum Security Prison near Buffalo, New York, Attica. In July of this year, the inmates were attempting an improvement in their treatment through the channels of the internal system by presenting a list of 27 demands regarding prison inmate improvements to the Commissioner of Corrections, Russell Oswald, and Governor Nelson Rockefeller, but were met with a deaf ear. And then, as if to prove a point, new additional restrictions were set upon the inmates. In a facility that was built to accommodate 1,200 prisoners, more than 2,200 were housed there. The prisoners complained that they didn't receive enough to eat, that they needed more than one shower per week, and required more than one roll of toilet paper per month, among other physical, political, and racial disputes. But on this day, something snapped. The inmates were on their way to breakfast, and following breakfast, as per usual, they would go to the yard for recreation. According to the research done by author Heather Ann Thompson in her book Blood in the Water, the doors were locked and the company was to return to their cells. The higher-ups forgot to tell the correctional officers working the floor of this decision, and this, Thompson believes, is what made their rage come to a head and they managed to overtake the unsuspecting guards who were just as surprised as the inmates, and suddenly they had an uprising on their hands. Many of the prison's 2,200 inmates participated in beating guards with makeshift weapons and setting fire to the prison's chapel. There was no turning back when guard William Quinn was beaten within an inch of his life and then thrown from a second-story window finishing him off. The state police were able to gain control of three-fourths of the prison with no further loss of life, but the prison's fourth quadrant, D-Yard, was still under the control of about 1,200 inmates, and with 39 blindfolded hostages that were mostly the guards, they were ready to negotiate. Among the group, they elected leaders among them to represent and act as the mouthpiece for the masses. They issued their list of demands, which included some that were fair and reasonable, and others which were not even a possibility. They wanted to improve living conditions and end male censorship, amnesty for everyone in D-Yard, along with safe passage to a, quote, non-imperialist country, end quote. It was an intense four days of negotiations as New York Corrections Commissioner Russell Oswald attempted to keep things from escalating. 
Requests for Governor Rockefeller to make an appearance at the talks were declined, and Rockefeller himself opted to go in another direction. Even after 28 of the prisoners' demands were acknowledged and agreed to, on the 13th of September, negotiations halted and neither side would budge and an ultimatum was read. Oswald stated that the inmate had one hour to accept the agreed-upon requests, surrender, and release their hostages. They, however, weren't happy with these new terms and threatened the lives of the hostages by pressing their knives to their throats. Elliot James Barkley, a speaker for the men, would declare, quote, What has happened here is but the sound before the fury of those who are oppressed. We will not compromise on any terms except those terms that are agreeable to us. End quote. Oswald did not warn them of the consequences for refusing to surrender, and when the inmates rejected their offer, there was no mercy. Then, at 9.46 a.m., due to the breakdown of forward-moving momentum and the governor's refusal to enter the negotiations, the state police, who were called in by Rockefeller, launched tear gas into the yard, followed closely by armed police. More than 3,000 rounds of ammunition was fired into the haze of the open yard, and by the time the fog cleared, 29 inmates and 10 of the hostages were dead with more than 89 wounded. It was a massacre, and it was 10.05. The situation was now under control, but at what cost? Immediately, authorities, led by Rockefeller, attempted a cover-up, claiming that the inmates killed their hostages in bloody and brutal ways. But as time went on, and the autopsies were done, witnesses' statements revealed all those who lost their lives that day were killed by police bullets. Some inmates were found to have multiple bullet wounds to the head. Others died due to the massive spray of bullets. In the following weeks after the riot, the correctional police continued extremely brutal and torturous treatment of the inmates, including forcing them to crawl naked over broken glass or run through a gauntlet of nightsticks, and most were not given medical treatment. In 1974, over 1,200 inmates filed a $2.8 billion lawsuit against the prison and state officials. After taking more than 20 years in January of 2000, a settlement of $8 million was divided among 500 inmates. Some were disqualified from the lawsuit because, without any knowledge of their legal rights, they cashed the paychecks issued to them from the state of New York. This makes the 50th anniversary of the Attica prison riot, and the sealed records still hold the rest of the story. September 10th our 24 Days of September takes us to Chicago next and the murder of a 14-year-old boy that shocked a nation. They believed they could pull off the perfect, motiveless crime. 14-year-old Bobby Franks was to be the victim. It was to be the crime of the century. And, in 1924, it kind of was. Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were both from wealthy families and grew up only blocks from each other, but did not form a friendship until their time at University of Chicago. Both extremely intelligent, they graduated early, excelling in their studies, and their wealth helped them to feel untouchable. 
As proof, they follow the teaching of Friedrich Nietzsche, in where he wrote of individuals who are above average and so extraordinary, possessing unusual capabilities that they are not expected to conform to the ordinary laws that govern ordinary men. They soon felt that they did not need to be bound by societal rules. They were supermen. They started testing out their theory with petty crimes, such as stealing items from other dorms, and when they didn't get caught or even suspected, they were emboldened to try something a little more adventurous. Arson. But once again they were disappointed that their misdeeds were not making headline news, so it was time to do something even more high stakes. Murder. Because they believed themselves so clever in order to confuse the authorities, they decided to throw in a ransom demand. They plotted and planned for seven months. They chose their murder weapon. They plotted out a scavenger hunt of clues for the police, with the final clue being the ransom demand. And they chose their victim, Bobby Franks, who happened to be Loeb's second cousin and a neighbor from across the street. He would be their target. On May 21, 1924, they put their plan into action. In a rented car, they pulled up alongside young Franks and offered him a ride. Since he knew Loeb, he accepted. The police believed that Leopold was driving while Loeb was in the back seat. The murder took place right away with Loeb stabbing the boy in the head and neck with a chisel, then hiding his body on the floorboard as they leisurely drove away from the Windy City. At their pre-chosen destination of Wolf Lake in Hammond, Indiana, they stripped Frank's body of his clothes and hid it in a culvert along some railroad tracks near the lake. They poured hydrochloric acid on his face and his genitalia and concealed the body. When they returned to Chicago, they initiated phase two of their plan. To their delight, the news of Bobby Frank's disappearance was already the buzz of everyone's conversation. Before anything else, Leopold called Bobby Frank's home, claiming to be George Johnson. He spoke to Bobby's mother and explained to her that her son had been kidnapped and instructions would be coming soon. And with that, they mailed off the first set of typewritten instructions to the family. Phase 3. Get rid of the evidence. The boys cleaned out the front and back seats of the rented sedan and burned their blood-stained clothes and celebrated with an evening of card playing. However, the brilliant Superman duo were thwarted pretty early on. The ransom letter was received and a second call from George Johnson was made, but then the body of Bobby Franks was discovered, so the ransom idea had to be aborted. I think, at this point, it's safe to say it was not the perfect crime. Loeb and Leopold destroyed the typewriter and burned the blanket they had wrapped Franks in. I guess they were planning on using that for later. I don't, I don't know why it didn't get burned with the first round of clothes. But with those things accomplished, life went back to business as usual. For one of them. Leopold decided that he should offer his genius to the police. He was kind enough to offer his insight. If he were to murder someone, he would this, this, or that. And he was happy to talk with reporters about the crime as well as offering up the smarter-than-the-average-human theories. It was then that Leopold's glasses were found near the body, and when they asked him about it, he was caught in the lie that would be his undoing. 
Add to that, the shattered typewriter was found. When they were both brought in for questioning, they folded like Superman on laundry day. They happily confessed to the details of the crime, but both accused the other of the actual murder. The plea of guilty was entered to the courts to avoid the death penalty, and the hearing lasted 32 days. The defense attorney, Clarence Darrell's plan, was to inform the sentencing committee of all the ways the two boys were dysfunctional. Side note, I think it's strangely satisfying to me that since their belief of being better than everyone else led them down this path in the first place, they had to listen to their own defense lawyer lay out all the ways that they are delusional and psychotic and have dysfunctional endocrine glands. Hey, you might as well throw it all in there. Quote from Darrow, This terrible crime was inherent in his organism, and it came from some ancestor. Is any blame attached because someone took Nietzsche's philosophy seriously and fashioned his life upon it? It is hardly fair to hang a 19-year-old boy for the philosophy that was taught to him at the university. End quote. Both boys were sentenced to life in prison for the murder and an extra 99 years for the kidnapping charge. Loeb was murdered in prison at age 30, and Leopold was paroled out and sponsored by the Brethren Service Commission to work in a hospital in Puerto Rico. He died of a heart attack at age 66. This year, 2021, marks the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, where four separate terrorist attacks were carried out against the United States of America on American soil by the terrorist group Al-Qaeda. Four planes were hijacked and flown into their specific targets, the North and South Towers of the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the fourth plane they believe was set to hit the White House or the U.S. Capitol, but was thwarted when passengers risked their own lives to try and recapture the plane. The hijackers purposefully rolled a plane aboarding their mission and ended up crashing in a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Almost 3,000 lives were lost that day, with over 25,000 injuries. As of this September 11, 2021, 1,106 victims are yet to be identified. It is considered the deadliest terrorist attack in history. Where were you when you heard the news? listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. These days, there's really only one reason to veer from Highway 79, taking 19 into the small town of 300 or so residents called Flatwoods. It's snuggled into the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia, but folks don't come here for the views. They come here for the monster. The Flatwoods Green Monster. As the legend goes, on September 12, 1952, Flatwoods, West Virginia got a visitor they will never forget 
The story has been passed down from generation to generation, and it even has its own museum where anything and everything you can paste the monster image on is sold. I will leave you in suspense no longer. On the evening in question, the sun was just beginning to set behind the tall pine trees that flourish in the area. Brothers Ed, who was 13, Freddie, who was 12, and their friend Tommy, who was 10, were playing at the school's playground when they saw a pulsing red light streak across the sky. It seemed to disappear just beyond the ridge toward a neighboring farm. Before scouting the area themselves, the brothers ran back to their home to get their mom. They followed the trajectory of the light and came to a clearing where they discovered others had seen the same light and all ended up here to investigate further. To their great shock and amazement, a creature that was somewhere between 10 to 17 feet tall hovering above the ground was there to greet them. Gene Lemon, who was part of the National Guard, said that he saw a pair of bright eyes in a tree. He screamed and fell backwards, telling a news reporter he saw, quote, a 10-foot monster with a blood-red body and a green face that seemed to glow, end quote. He said he aimed his flashlight up towards the tops of the trees and saw a man-like figure with, quote, a round, red face surrounded by a pointed, hood-like shape, end quote. A local newspaper publisher, A. Lee Stewart, said that he marched up the hill with a shotgun after hearing the stories from the witnesses. It was gone by the time he arrived, but would say of his neighbors, quote, People don't make up that kind of story that quickly, end quote. The state police laughed at the reports, but the witnesses matched up so clearly, except for the size, that it convinced a team from the U.S. Air Force to come out and investigate. They went up to the hill and apparently took away samples of the ground, vegetation, and a piece of black plastic material to be tested. Once the local papers printed the story, national publishers picked it up, and soon the Flatwoods Green Monster was a household discussion. Kathleen Mays, the mother of the two boys, and Jean Lemon were invited to New York to tell their frightening tale live on CBS. Mrs. May would describe the creature as, quote, having small claw-like hands, clothing-like folds, and a head that resembled the ace of spades, end quote. According to the reporting of a Mr. and Mrs. William Smith, who stopped by the little town to investigate, their interviews with the witnesses added a few extra details that was printed in the UFO Guide of Guides at the time, a quarterly bulletin that began in 1947, the Civilian Saucer Investigation. Their report stated, quote, Gene Lemon has had many encounters with animals roaming in the woods when he saw what he initially believed to be the shining eyes of a raccoon on an overhanging limb. In the following few seconds, the little group was petrified with fright at the sight of an enormous figure which suddenly seemed to come to life. It was though a light had been turned on inside the figure. A reddish glow shone through a head with only the eyes visible, and a greenish light glowed through the cloth-like covering of the lower parts of the body. Although some irritating odor had been noticed before, now a violent thumping began on the inside of the monster and a dense cloud of mist escaped with a hissing noise, end quote. Apparently, the cloud made everyone sick. Gene Lemon and the others would report convulsing and vomiting. 
the local doctor said the boys showed symptoms similar to those of mustard gas. Quote, At 6.30 the next morning, the story continued, the director of the Board of Education saw a flying saucer take off not far from his house and immediately reported it to the Sutton newspaper. Only then was he informed of the happenings of the night before. End quote. Other stories and letters from the area and beyond confessed of their own sightings of just such a creature. Those at the Lemon House, for example, added to their son's story by saying that they were home at the time of the sighting, but she and a friend were having coffee when, quote, the house shook so violently that coffee spilled over the table and they thought the house had fallen off its foundation. The radio went off for 45 minutes and came back on by itself. End quote. Was it real? Did the government cover up the results of the investigation? Was it just an owl in the tree following a meteor? We may never know. But if you need a Flatwoods Monster keychain, I may know just the place. In 1928, we did not have the scientific technology to track storms and weather interferences quite the way we can today. So, even while those who lived along the coast of Palm Beach, Florida, knew to always be prepared for possible tropical storms or even hurricanes, no one had any idea what kind of damage would come from this nameless hurricane. Winds hitting 150 miles per hour, ripping roofs from the houses. Floodwaters rising so rapidly it felt like you were walking through sludge. Rain pricking your skin like needles flying sideways from the skies. Screams of horror and suffering rise above the howling winds as everyone was searching for safety. In a matter of six hours or less, the towns along the Florida coast were crumbled into stacks of toothpicks and bodies. A Category 5 hurricane hits the Caribbean around midday of the 13th of September, 1928 unexpectedly killing upwards of 1,000 residents before turning sharply to take on the Florida coast. It hit everything from Fort Pierce to Palm Beach, but didn't stop there. It seemed like the most damage would happen at the unassuming farming town that surrounded Lake Okeechobee. Not showing any signs of slowing down, the rains filled the confines of Lake Okeechobee to the brink, and with tons of water pressure, burst through the dike that controlled the water levels for not only the surrounding farmland community, but kept the Everglades at an even balance as well. As families huddled together in their homes waiting for the storm to pass, six feet of water was coming right for them, and they had only moments to reach higher ground, which, for most, was the roof of their own house. Within moments, the surrounding areas for miles were battling waters as high as 20 feet deep. Parents helpless to protect their children as each person had to cling to whatever was around to keep their head above water. The impact of the six-foot waves plus the pelting of the continuous rain knocked homes from their foundations as many bobbed along until crashing into something else or flipping over. Helen McCormick was 13 in 1928 and recalls clinging to the roof of her house. She said, quote, I remember the rain. I thought it would beat me to death, end quote. Helen's extended family of 19, including aunts, uncles, and cousins, were all clinging to the rooftop. 
the wind was whipping so fiercely and the rain coming down in sheets that you couldn't see if anyone was in front of you. Her mother was trying desperately to hold on for her own life and the life of her son in her arms. In retelling her story, she has said, quote, I was holding on to the roof and calling out to my mother, first me, then my brother. I'd say, Mama, are you there? And she'd answer, until after a while, she didn't answer anymore, end quote. Helen and her stepfather survived. The other 17 members of her family did not. The aftermath was overwhelming. Bodies were floating everywhere, and with the heat and humidity, many were unidentifiable. At first, the bodies were stacked up like cords of wood when they were found, but Florida, thanks to its high water table, does not do well with graves. The ground was so saturated that the bodies would just not stay buried. The first few dozen were quickly sent to West Palm Beach and buried in a mass grave, and a few days later, while the body count continued to climb into the triple digits, a mass grave was dug in Port Maraca in its sandy soil. But the bodies, they just kept coming, floating to the surface. Helen McCormick recalls a man wading through the thigh-high waters with his arms full of dead babies, asking everyone he came across, if they recognized any of them. Oh, my heart. They eventually had to use diesel fuel to burn the bodies to keep the stench of decay and the disease under control. This was the first natural disaster in history where the United States Army Corps of Engineers came in to offer assistance with creating a plan to help with evacuation, floodgates, and levees. The Red Cross came in with food, supplies, and helped with cleanup. Tomatoes, rice, beans, loaves of bread, coffee, sugar, cots and blankets were sent to the survivors from Miami. Volunteers came forward with personal supplies, clothes, and set up massive fire pits to cook for the newly homeless. As of today, it is considered the third deadliest hurricane in American history, killing upwards of 2,500 people. And wow, this brings us to the end of the first half of the Bag of Bones podcast anniversary issue. Thanks again to at RobertTaylor18 on Instagram for his suggestion for this format. I am loving these dark historical snippets. And speaking of loyal listener suggestions, be sure that you are subscribed and are following the Bag of Bones podcast wherever you get your podcast fixed because the first eight episodes of our new season are all listener-suggested topics. You won't want to miss a single episode. Also, if you haven't already, could you take just a quick moment to head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and an enticing review? I would love for our listenership to double, maybe even triple this next year, and with every review we get introduced to new listeners that hopefully turn into fans. My first year in the world of podcasting has been quite the learning curve, but I am loving the platform and the content, and I hope you are too. Meet me back here next week as we complete our 24 Days of September anniversary episode. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then.
Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Isle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com merch now to check things out.